Amen. It's been a very interesting week for me. I decided to go down to see my mother, who is going to turn 89 in a few days, uh, down in West Virginia. And in my attempts to uh, make good preparations, I realized that uh, I made I scheduled the flight in such a way that uh, I had all the information on the computer, called my mother, and just wanted to make sure it was okay during that time frame. And by the time I got back on the phone with, uh, by the time I got off the phone with her and went back to my computer, all of my information had been uh, restarted in terms of the reservation process. So I, in my haste to, uh, to get all the right numbers plugged back in there and the all the right flights, uh, I made the reservation, bought the tickets, and then, assuming my plane would leave at 7.40 in the morning on Tuesday, I found out when I arrived at the airport at 6.30 or whatever it was, uh, that the flight was scheduled for 7.40 p.m. So I had a nice time to read and look at a book that uh, Mike Sterlacci gave me several weeks ago called Crazy Busy. It's about time, about being busy, about not having enough time. Well, I had plenty of time to read the book about being super busy. And I saw it as a divine way of God having a sense of humor, I guess, in some ways, and I'm sort of, sort of a knucklehead, uh, slow sometimes, and, but realizing that this was God's ordained plan for me with lots of time to sit in an airport. And as I read through the book, I noticed it's really interesting because Kevin DeYoung says in his book, Crazy Busy, here he is given the opportunity to write the book, and he says, I'm supposed to write it, he says, but I would if I had the time. I mean, isn't that sort of the irony of the whole thing? It's that we're all busy. And when you, he says, when you ask someone, how are you, the reply rarely would ever be, well, for starters, I'm not very busy. Most people, that's not a response that you hear from them, unless he says, there might be maybe a six-year-old somewhere who doesn't have anything to do, or maybe some folks in a nursing home who wish they had more to do. But most of us, he says, almost everyone in between there is a pervasive sense of being unrelentingly filled up or stressed out. Can we relate to that? That's true for a majority of us. We are crazy busy. I think that's sort of what goes with the territory of Long Island, right? I mean, that tends to be the lifestyle that many of us lead. And is that why everybody's 10 minutes late to everything here? Uh, sorry, I'm off into other things here. Okay, <laughs> wasn't expecting an answer to that question, but anyway. But it's true. Our schedules are jammed full for many of us. Our schedules are jammed full. We have so much activity, whether it's work, whether it's screen time. We're always looking at something on our screens. There's various commuting issues that people put, you know, several hours of their day are commuting around here. That does add to the schedule. That's unique to this area in some ways. There's the shuttling the kids around and all sorts of activities they're involved in because they are super busy leaves many of us with little time for relationships, for reflection, and for rest. So I had a day at the airport where I'd had nothing to do but sit and rest and read. It was really actually quite, quite a good thing. But what is at the root of a hectic lifestyle? Now that's a lot of issues there that I'm not going to be able to unpack either. And you're still probably wondering, what does this have to do with our Advent sermon? Get, give me a break. I'm getting there. Just give me a moment here. 
Um, I think that there are, depending on where you are in life, some people, because of a hectic lifestyle, it's because you're a student, because you have lots going on, because of school, other activities, uh, you have a lot of homework, this and that, whatever. Uh, some of us have small children, and so your life is busy because somebody else, uh, you have responsibility for them and their needs, and you're taking care of them. Others of us, again, have many hours that we spend just trying to get to work, not, not to mention that work expects us to stay a little longer and longer, and we dare not lose our job because we have a hard time finding a job. And So many of us find ourselves in the midst of busyness, whether we like it or not. But I'm wondering, could it be that one of the underlying reasons for overloaded schedules for many of us, some of us perhaps, might have as its roots in terms of some of the underlying issues, may actually get into issues of spiritual truth. Might it be that some of us are yearning in our pursuit of what we value in life, we're yearning for something that's going to make us find significance, something that will help us find fulfillment, something that will give us a fullness to life. We don't want to lead a life that's just empty and not significant. And so many of us take on more than we should. We're trying to handle more than we can possibly deal with. And sometimes it might be because we have got an idol in our hearts that says, I am yearning for fullness and significance that's beyond something I'll find in God, to the point at which we're way out of line and out of balance. You add to that a realization that our lives are slipping past us. Boy, did that hit home uh, this past week as I spent time with my mother, who's 88, and she introduces me as her, here's my little son, here's my son, my youngest son. And I'm thinking, oh my word, these people are looking at me, and I'm thinking, we have had a long life together. Uh, I'm 56, and I'm thinking, uh, life has moved by so quickly. Where did it all go? And uh, realizing that I'm, someday I'm going to be, if God tarries and I'm given the opportunity, I might live that long too, thinking, man, where is life going? And sometimes we don't like the idea of contemplating reality, a life that seems empty or void. We not, a lot of us fear one thing, and that is to slow down and have nothing to do would be a terrible, terrible situation for some of us. It's interesting that when we think about life and time, Here's an interesting quote from the book, Crazy Busy. We all can admit that there's a certain amount of limitation when it comes to our money. We don't have unlimited money available to us to spend, like the government. We have limits as to what we can spend. But when it comes to time, isn't that also true? Everybody has limits when it comes to time. The supply of time is totally inelastic. You can't expand it or contract it. It is what it is. It's only 24 hours per day. And no matter how high the demand for time, the supply will not go up. You can't get more time. And then it goes on to say in the book, time is totally perishable and cannot be stored up. Yesterday's time is gone forever. It will never come back. Today, Time, time is, therefore, always in exceedingly short supply. Time, he says, may be our scarcest and most precious resource. Isn't that true? It seems to me that the older you get, that is true. It really is. Now, I say all that to say this. 
we're struggling with our schedules. We're struggling with the reality that time is never owned by us. <laughs> it seems to be the one that's always sort of yanking us around, saying, you don't have time for this. You've got to get to this. You've got to get to that. It becomes sort of a master to us. I want to think about this third characteristic of Jesus the Messiah found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's a very interesting title that Isaiah gives and predicts about this one who was to come, a son who was to be born. His name was going to be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We talked about that last week. And this week we're considering the Messiah as the Eternal Father. Now, if you're like me, you scratch your head and say for a minute, that's an interesting title for a son. Father, a son. And yet, if you think about it, it's a Hebrew phrase. I think it's probably helpful to interpret it this way. The word father in Hebrew meant originator. Uh, it meant the author of something or someone. So if we think of, like, for example, in the scriptures, you understand that Satan is called, in John chapter 8, the father of lies. So we understand that to mean he was the originator. He was the first to come up with a big fib, started lying. And then we understand in Genesis chapter 4 that Jebel is the father of those who dwell in tents. He was the first guy, the cutting edge guy who went out and started becoming sort of more mobile and living from place to place. And so if we think of now the term Isaiah is using for Jesus here as the everlasting or eternal father, it meant that Jesus, as the Messiah, is the originator of eternity. He is the one who understands and is the one who stands outside of time, and therefore, as the eternal one, rules and reigns over time. He is the everlasting one. As we contemplate this one coming into history, I want to consider a couple things about time as it relates to Jesus and the struggles that we face. I'm sorry I didn't give you any notes. It's a long story. I was trying to log in uh, in the place I stayed, and it was not working at the time I needed it. So anyway, you got blank notes. Here we go. Here's point number one. I want to think for a moment about eternity and the frustration of time. Eternity and the frustration of time. No matter what time zone we live in, we as humans long for life to continue on. Don't you hate it when something is interrupted in what you had thought was going to take place in your plans? We always find that the sorrow of death is agonizingly painful. Why? Because we want things to continue on in this relationship with this person that we knew and loved. We yearn for relationships to continue and we desire significance in this life that's grounded in something or someone that's higher than us. We long for an existence which will supersede our existence in this earth. And there's an interesting verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in which it's interesting to see what God, has said, what God says there. He says this, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity into their heart. There's a part of us that is wired with a sense of eternity in us. Now, this sentiment is not just found in those of us in the West who are so time conscious. It's also found among primitive cultures that Don Richardson has, read about, has written about this in Eternity in Their Hearts. He's gone and interacted with a number of different tribal groups in very, uh, uh, very 
undeveloped areas of the world. And they also have this longing for continuing on into the next world. So my question to us today is, is your heart yearning for that which is lasting, that which is eternal? I wonder how many of you have ever gone to an estate sale. How many of you have ever gone to an estate sale? Some of you are missing out. You should go to some time. Uh, several months ago in the summertime, Joyce and I uh, had breakfast out on a Friday, which we typically do, and then as we're driving around, there's signs everywhere. Estate sale, sale up ahead, whatever. So we follow the signs and show up in this big, nice, big house in a very nice part of the island. And as we go in there, I don't know if you know what about estate sale, but basically my understanding is that most often a person has died uh, and whoever has survived that person goes through the house, selects what items they think they want and want to keep, and the remaining items, which is usually quite a few items, are left in the house. They bring a professional in and they price every single item in the house and allow people to then wander through the house and then purchase those items as sold, as they're priced. You can't bargain too much on things. It is what it is. They're trying to make money. So as you go through, you begin to realize, look at all these things. And in that particular estate sale, uh, the only thing, one of the few things we bought was a frame, like a photo frame, which we know we always give those away to grandparents, whatever. And the other day, as I'm preparing to go to my, to my mother's, bring her what little I could possibly think to give her for Christmas and birthday, which you're 88 years old, and so you, what do you give? You give, kids of the, you give pictures of family at the weddings we've had this past year. So we took this frame we bought, and as we're, Joyce is taking it apart to put the photo in there, guess what? Here's a photo of that family underneath uh, whatever photo was on the, on the top of that thing. And it just was, to me, a very strong indication, a reminder again of what? These people, they, they own this stuff. It was valuable to them for a period of time. But then there's a sense in which that will lose its value. It's passed on to somebody else. It is not going to last very long. We're only managers of the things we have for a period of time, and they will leave it all behind. In Psalm 90, Moses thinks a lot about time marching on. And he expressed how impressed he is by God, that God is eternal in his nature. That God is against the backdrop of the brevity of human life. He begins to see God as the one who never had a beginning, never has an end. He says, life for us, we end it with a sigh. It doesn't last long at all. It's like a, a, a mere breath and boom, you're gone. And he concludes this psalm at the end. Verse 17, he says this. He asks God, he ends with a prayer, he says, Lord, confirm or give permanence to the work of my hands. Give a sense of value and significance to what I'm doing and accomplishing with my life. Many people are driven to find significance that will outlast our earthly existence. And solving this tension between time and eternity leads to people adopting various philosophies as to how they will do that. Some people deal with this tension between eternity and time in this world, a philosophy that says, well, let's just disregard anything that's eternal. And let's sort of take that out of the equation. Let's live for the here and let's live for the now, assuming there is nothing in the world to come. 
So what is their life philosophy? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you what? You die. You stop eating, you stop drinking, and you stop being merry because you're dead. And that's it. And so that philosophy is highly prevalent many times in the West now. And interestingly enough, that kind of philosophy assumes there is no God. It assumes there's no such thing as eternal existence beyond death. And therefore, they ask the question, why bother then with all of these other issues that people think, seem to think is so important? I'm not messing with all that. Why bother with personal morality? Who cares? Of course, that's popular because that's no accountability at all in that kind of life. And Jesus gave a very strong parable of, of instruction regarding the whole idea of being rich in this world, thinking you're going to enjoy a long life of retirement and you've got a lot saved up. And you can see the advertisements really cluing in onto that kind of the baby boomers as they begin to get old now and headed toward retirement. Wow, just sit there and do whatever you want the rest of your life. And Jesus says in Luke 12, you can be a rich fool if you're not rich toward God. That is, you can have a lot of earthly things and then you die of what, of what value is all that you had stored up if all it is is just stuff and money. Also, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, people who want to eat, drink, and be merry, if you, have no, if you do not believe in a future resurrection, then why not live like that? And many secular people, that is how they live their life. Another view that devalues eternity and that heightens the importance of temporal pursuits devoid of any kind of eternal perspective on life is the kind of mindset that says, I've got to get done as much as I can in this world because that's all that exists. And so they are the people who are scrambling. They're the people who are on that treadmill of life as fast on the highest setting you can go. I'll do as much as I possibly can. I don't have time to slow down. I've got to do it all. Get out of my way. Those are the people that are always angry, but, you know, honking on the horn. Get out of my way. I've got to hurry up. Get to where I'm going. I've got lots to do. And those people, I would call, many of them, are pragmatic pagans. Pragmatic in the sense that what? I'll just cheat. I'll steal. I'll lie. I'll bribe. I'll do whatever I want to advance my career because it's all about me. And so it's, they, they really don't care what it takes or what kind of corners they have to, to cut. They just want to frantically achieve self-advancing accomplishments for themselves. Now, what does Jesus' incarnation in any way speak to these kinds of issues about eternal, as the one who's the eternal or father? What does it teach us about our perspective on life and the fact that we are bound by time, but that we are wired for eternity? I've got three points I want to just make some brief comments about. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, 1 John 1, page 1446 in your pew Bible. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Here, at the beginning of this epistle that the Apostle John wrote at the latter part of his life, it's one of the oldest, uh, some of his writings are some of the oldest in the New Testament. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, 
what we have seen with our eyes concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. We have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So here's the one who has eternal life, and now he makes himself known and reveals that eternal life to us. And we've seen it, we've heard it, it's eyewitnesses. Jesus had a birth, but no beginning. Jesus showed us what it's like to live by the eternal. And his life sustained a balanced perspective of limited time in this world with eternal priorities. Jesus' deeds, his values, were steeped in the eternal viewpoint of God. And he looked at people from a perspective of eternity. He resisted the conforming pressures of the opinions of his day. What were some of those opinions? Well, here's an example. Consider the way Jesus viewed other people, his fellow human beings that he came across in his ministry in the world. Rather than viewing the publicans, the sinners, as outcasts, he viewed them as sheep who were in need of a shepherd. And rather than viewing children as worthless, unimportant, keep them in the background and don't even have any kind of importance placed on them, he rather dramatically differed with his peers who said, oh, don't mess with that child, put that child down, let's get on important things. No, Jesus affirmed the value of the nobodies of that society. It is Jesus who saw the value and dignity of each life. He took time out from the pressure of the crowds to speak to and to touch those people who were viewed as worthless and unimportant. No wonder Jesus' words were the words of eternal life. Because what he said and how he demonstrated his understanding of the importance of truth was lived out in a way that truly was showing forth what eternal values are all about. I wonder, how does eternity affect your view of other people? How do you view the person at your workplace who is obnoxious? Who is oftentimes the the thorn in your flesh? How do you view the relative in your family that seems to always make life gatherings complicated for you and your family? That your children sometimes say, can we not invite so-and-so this year? How do you view and deal with people at your school who are the exact opposite of you? People who are not very respectful, who are not people who are easy to love. Do we just use people? Do we we serve them or do we use them? I come across a quote by C.S. Lewis I thought was quite profound in his book, The Weight of Glory. Now, if this is a little bit hard to follow, I should have put it in your notes, so I apologize. But anyway, see if you can follow along in C.S. Lewis uh, from the book, The Weight of Glory. He talks about the fact that we are not just uh, limited to beings who are earthly, but someday that we will have a day of when we will be viewed as people who are either glorified or we will be spirits who are, are, are damned eternally. So he says this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, small g, 
to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet now, if at all, in a nightmare. In other words, the person you're dealing with, you're not impressive now, but someday they're going to be incredibly impressive to the point you could not possibly ignore them. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations, heaven or hell. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. It is immortals with whom you joke, work with, marry, snub, or exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. How do you view people? How do you view the elderly? Wow, it's been three or four days with all kinds of elderly people. Many people that our society today don't spend hardly any time with someone who's elderly. How about, how do you view people who have special needs? Do you try to avoid them? Or is your heart drawn to them? How about the social outcasts of our society? Do you view people who are defined by our culture as hopeless and worthless? How do you view them? I would say again, children must be viewed not as gods, to be worshipped, but to see them as very important individuals who desperately need to hear and to know the Word of God. And our society has many orphans. There are so many fatherless children in our society who do not have a loving parent who will teach them, instruct them, model life for them. Children in foster care, children of divorce. And here's an interesting quote that came out of Kevin DeYoung's book. He talks about the fact that one thing that you can't escape if you're living in a world and you're super busy, to somehow think you're going to live a life and you're not going to suffer and have the additional of knowing that, having the burden of saying, part of living life in this world is you have to be busy if you're involved with people. He says, you will suffer if you are committed to people. That is so true. Life is messy. People are complicated. People are difficult to deal with, and they have problems. So therefore, how we view with people is, some of us like to just be in the HOV lane of life and say, hey, you got problems you've broken down over there? See you later. i got places and things i got to do. Don't have time for you. I'm thankful to say there are many people I sense in our church family here who do care who do slow down, who do find time to care for others. Now, if you're hearing me say these things and you're super busy and all you do is help other people and you're feeling guilty for you're not doing enough, then you're not hearing me because there are many other values you need to also counterbalance some of these issues. And certainly Jesus did not heal every person when he was here on earth. Find comfort in that. And that leads us to another point. Jesus came to provide a solution to our inherent problem 
the fact that we are not ready for eternity. On our own, due to sin, none of us can know God in a personal way. None of us can share in the eternal life of God, given the fact that we enter this world spiritually dead. In the eternal plan of God, it was Jesus who was born so that he could die for sinners like you and me. And Jesus came to redeem his people, according to Ephesians 1, who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The the sending of Christ has been part of an eternal plan that God has had before time even began. And according that, that purpose was to be worked out according to his eternal purpose of God, which he purposed in Christ our Lord. And Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation to all who believe upon him. And through his vicarious death, his resurrection, Jesus provides what? He provides an eternal inheritance, Hebrews chapter 9. And that inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us, 1 Peter chapter 1. And what God did through Christ was to bestow upon lowly sinners the unspeakable privilege of eternal blessings of salvation from our sin. And the work of the work on the cross which Christ accomplished provided the basis upon which God can justify sinners and still be a just God. He then bestows the most valuable gift to those who will believe everlasting life. What's that great verse? John 3, verse 16. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, a life with the God who made us, to know him. Is your life wrapped up in the things that are just going to be burned up or sold at some estate sale? Or do you prize the priceless riches of eternal salvation in Jesus Christ? Is he the treasure? Is he the prize that you value the most? Boy, I tell you, the more I know Christ and the more I sense of what Christ has provided to me in the gospel, the more I find my heart less satisfied with the things of this world. One more final point. Stay with me, please. In reflecting upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, I want to emphasize one other thought about Jesus as the eternal Father. He has control over time control over time. When you look at the life of Christ, I believe Christ lived with the understanding that Psalm 31:15 was true of him and I think it's true of us. Our times are in God's hands. Our times are in God's hands. When Jesus lived according to this divine eternal timetable. His enemies sought to stone him, we read one time in John chapter 7. And then we read that they could not stone him. Why? Because his hour was not yet come. Later on, I mean earlier in his life, Jesus said to his mother in Cana, he's turning water into wine at this wedding there, and he says in John chapter 2, my hour is not yet come. He knew that there was an eternal plan, there's eternal, uh, uh, under, uh, eternal, plans that are being unfolded as he went through his life. And yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, he yielded to the agony of the cross and he declared, Father, the hour is come. 
I wonder, would you say that you believe your times are in God's hands? Do you believe in God's providence reigning and ruling over every detail and every situation your life goes in? Let me tell you something. I was definitely assured in my mind and heart this week that my sitting in these airports, by the way, I also, that the same day Tuesday, I got to early to the airport that day, too early for the flight, and then with the weather, the flight I was supposed to make to finally get to my destination, they canceled it at midnight. So what do they do? They haul you over to a hotel, which is a very nice hotel, by the way, but had like three hours of sleep, you know, and they had to get up first thing, and you got to get back to the airport, whatever. The joys of travel. Anyway, the point was this. I had to say to myself, there's no use getting upset with these things. These are things that God has ordained for me. I just calmly accepted them as best I could. Do you run into frantic days sometimes? And you find your soul anything but calm, anything but resting in the control and providence of God? Do you ever take time to reflect on the eternal plan of God for you in your life? Do you ever think that you are allowed to have a day where you can say no to everything else in your life and say yes to the things you always yearn to say yes to? I believe, I believe that God wants us to have one day in seven where we can have a day to say yes to the things that we long to say yes to. But we're too busy doing other things. And I just want to speak one more thing about those, some of us who are here today, and we are in a situation where time doesn't seem to be moving fast enough. And what are those moments of time like, moments of life like? Usually when you're suffering. Usually when life is really difficult. Usually when you're crying out to God saying, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? I want to just speak to that just for a moment and just say to you this. The sufferings that Jesus endured only lasted us whatever God had ordained the length of that to last. And I would just say this, remember that your times of suffering is in God's hands. Many of us who are pleading, many of those who pleaded with Jesus for healing in the first century, oftentimes they were miraculously restored. But there are others who were not healed, and, and Paul, in praying three times to find a relief from the stake that was in his side, was told, my grace is sufficient for you. Perhaps some of us are bewildered by the apparent slowness of God's sovereign hand. I assure you, the everlasting Father, He has conquered time, and He is at work, working out His eternal purposes in your life to bring His people into conformity with His image to be more like Christ. And I pray that as you think about His control over all things, that you'll find yourself greatly reassured greatly calmed in your soul to know that eternal Father reigns and rules over your days in this earth and into the future if you are in Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious and sovereign God, we bow before you today as mere mortals who have no control over all of the things that happen in our lives. And Lord, some of us understand the weight of being busy. We understand a life of 
a hectic schedule and sort of scrambling at everything. And every time we turn around, we're just always on overdrive. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Thank you that we had these moments today, Lord, where each of these folks were willing to set aside some time to listen, to reflect, to worship, to ponder eternal issues. Father, I pray that you would help us to do this on a regular basis. I pray that we might consider Christ, who as the eternal one came and entered into time and surrendered himself to accomplish what you desired for him and left undone nothing that it was designed for him, but he certainly didn't do all that many of us would have wished or wanted him to do. We pray that we might, Lord, understand the pursuit of everlasting life through Jesus Christ and trust in him and finding our true life in him, a life that will satisfy, a life that will give us the fulfillment we long for, not in our accomplishments, but being joyful and relying upon what Christ has done for us. We pray that, Father, you might help us to see these things in a way that will open our hearts to the things you want us to learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.